Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 16. It's the same passage of Scripture that we looked at last week. Um, And what we did last week was to compare it to some of the things that we've seen before. Uh, We're going to do a little bit more of that today, but we're actually going to get into the bowls of wrath that are being poured out and revealed to us here and try to understand the symbolism of those things. So Revelation chapter 16, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 2, and I'll read again through verse 11. So if you would, just follow along in your copy of God's Word. John tells us, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we go any further in in our study of it? Father, I do thank you for your Word. I thank you for gathering us together for the purpose of singing your Word and hearing your Word read and responding to your Word to confess our sins. And and now our worship has taken us to the point that we are going to focus upon your Word as it is taught. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give me strength by your Spirit to preach and teach your Word faithfully and effectively and humbly. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. And I do pray that as the gospel is heard, as our our hope in Christ is heard, that those who are here who don't know you, who are strangers to your love and to your promises, Lord, I pray that you would move by your spirit in their hearts to humble them, to show them their sin and their need of Christ. And I pray that you would teach us, feed us as your people, help us to be nourished by this truth. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you do if you were stuck in one place and everything that you did was the same and nothing mattered? That was Phil's question after he was assigned to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania to cover the festivities of Groundhog Day to determine if Puxatawney Phil was going to wake up and see his shadow. And some of you recognize that line from the movie Groundhog Day that starred Bill Murray. Some of you know that movie, some of you don't know that movie. The movie came out in 1993, and it's the story of a narcissistic weatherman who finds himself stuck in a time loop. He is condemned to live the same day over and over and over again. 
And he's the only person in his world that knows that this is happening. And after going through all the range of emotions that an individual might go through having to live the same day over and over and over again, like dismay and bitterness and revolt and despair and suicidal self-destruction and all of these different things, after going through all of this, he begins to do something that is not natural to him. He begins to learn. He learns to be thankful for the things that he once took for granted. He learns to be kind to the people he once ignored. He, he learns to seize the moments of the same day every time they come around rather than to grumble that things aren't happening the way he wants them to. You see, being forced to live the same day over and over again actually made him a better man. Some of y'all know that story. It's an interesting movie, kind of a cult classic, if you will. You can just say it's kind of like Groundhog Day and everybody knows what you're talking about. Repetition is a great tool of instruction. It's a great way to learn. And that's good because we're in chapter 16 of the Revelation and perhaps you felt a little like it's Groundhog Day as we've been studying this book and we've been seeing the same thing over and over and over again. There are a series of themes that we see throughout the Revelation, like the the theme of persecution. The persecution of the people of God is throughout the book. And then the people of God cry out to him. Even we see that picture back in Revelation 6 where where the martyrs are below the throne of God and they're crying out for justice and God hears them and in response, God begins to pour out his judgment upon the world. And that was all the way back in chapter 6. And we've been studying that theme of judgment ever since. The persecution of the people of God, the judgment that God pours out against the unbelieving world, and then the hope of the reward of the saints, the the full salvation of the people of God. That's also a theme that we keep seeing over and over as we study this book. These themes appear as many times as they do because God wants to fix these truths deep into our minds and into our lives. Repetition has a purpose. Revelation is a cyclical book, I believe, and I've been teaching from that perspective. It's filled with patterns, it's filled with visions, it's filled with repetition. Old Testament stories are brought to light in terms of New Testament realities. We've seen the same themes play out over and over again, and the bowls of God's wrath are really no exception. That's one of the things we saw last week. That there is a continuity between the trumpets and the bowls. And laid over all of this is the thematic framework of the Exodus account. The bowls represent the judgment of God upon the entire unbelieving world, not just Egypt. In these bowls, God is punishing unbelievers, as we learned last week, for the sins of idolatry and persecution of the saints and their lack of repentance. And the city of Babylon continues to be this symbolic center of the wicked world, and God's judgment is raining down upon it. That's why I put the title of this sermon, Babylon Under Siege, because these bowls being poured out indicate for us that the city of Babylon, the symbolic capital of this world, is under siege from God's judgment. But there are some questions I want us to ask. So we just read the same passage we read last week. And there are three questions that I want us to think about today. Number one, when will these things take place? That's a big question in our minds. When will these things take place? Number two, why is the exodus the pattern that God is using 
to teach this, this whole theme, this whole plan and purpose? And number three, what do these bowls represent? So those are the three questions I'm going to seek to try to answer today. So let's look back at the very first part here. Where Let's ask the question this way. When will these things happen? Now, one of the, this is one of the questions that comes to our minds when we start studying the Revelation. And I know that because over the last year, you have asked me that question dozens and dozens of times. When is this going to happen? How is this going to work out? What is this going to look like? And, and I've tried to be gracious in my answer and say, wait, we'll, we'll get there. We'll understand this. And, and I have my own questions as well. If we could summarize one of the, the most significant questions we have is like, when is this going to take place? And that's a great question to ask. It's a great question to ask because even Jesus' disciples asked that question. In the Gospels, when Jesus began to teach them about the things that were to come, he began to, to forecast the judgment that was coming and his purpose and his plan for the world in the end. The disciples asked questions like, uh, when will these things be and what signs are we to look for to tell us that the time has finally come? And if you go back and you look at Matthew chapter 25 or Mark 13, you'll realize that Jesus doesn't directly answer their question. He gives them principles that they are to live by no matter what is taking place in the world. He does give them some indication of what's going to happen, but he doesn't directly answer their question. So it's a good question to ask, but we might not get the answer that we want. But the question of the chronology of the revelation is important to us, and most of us have been taught to think about this question in a particular way. Here's what I mean. I became a believer in college, I was 21 years old, and when the subject of the revelation came up, there was only one way that you were supposed to understand the book. When it came to end times prophecy, the dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism of Schofield and Ryrie and Schaefer, that was the only approved way to view the revelation. At least that's the way it was in my church. Anybody else fall into that category? Yeah, there was no other way. In fact, we were told that if you, if you disagreed with that, then you were on your way to theological liberalism. Because unless you interpreted the revelation literally and chronologically, then you, you had left the reservation, so to speak. And that's basically the, the air that I was breathing as a new believer. And yet, I struggled with that interpretation of the revelation. And so, as I began to study broader when I went into seminary, I realized that there were a host of faithful and brilliant Bible scholars that were studying and teaching the Revelation from different perspectives. And maybe you've discovered that along the way. Maybe you picked up a, a Four Views on the Revelation book somewhere and you realized, oh, there's different ways to see this. There's different ways to interpret this. And all of those ways, well, most of those ways fall within the bounds of biblical orthodoxy. There's a wide range of perspectives. Some people will look at this book and they will arrange the events of the revelation in the past. Like these things have already taken place. Some will look at this book, most people will look at this book and, and view most of it happening in the future, in the future that is to come. And yet Jesus tells us in the beginning that what he's going to reveal to us are the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. So there's an element of past, present, and future in this. And I've been teaching from a particular perspective, that is to say that what we're looking at in all of these series of visions are all taking place between the, the first and second coming of Christ, the same period 
of time, known as the church age. And some of these things are happening now. Some of the judgments that we have seen are happening now. And yet some of them, specifically the bowls that we're looking at in their finality, well, this is still to come. God's ultimate judgment on the wicked and the final salvation of believers has not yet happened. Amen? We can agree on that. But we can also agree that some of the suffering and persecution and tribulations that we see in this book, those things are happening right now. The church is being persecuted right now. Small-scale judgments from God are happening right now. But the full unleashing of his wrath is still to come. As we saw last week, there are similarities between the trumpets and the bowls, and those similarities are, they're unmistakable. You can't miss those similarities. The parallelism is easy to see, but the major difference between the trumpets and the bowls is that the trumpets portray a partial judgment, and the bowls portray this complete and final judgment. All of the earth is subject to it. And theologians will call this, here's here's your $5 word for the day, theologians will call this Progressive recapitulation. You can write that down if you want. You can look it up. Progressive recapitulation. The patterns that we've been seeing, that I've been drawing to your attention over and over again as we've studied this book, that there are such that we see God's people facing persecution, and God promises that even as we face tribulation in this world, He has sealed us, He has protected our souls, and even though um, we die, not a hair of our head will perish as Jesus taught us. So there's persecution coming, but God will protect His people. Then his judgment descends in response to the cries of his people. The wicked who, who hurt the church, they, they see these judgments coming and they don't repent of them. And each cycle that we've seen ends with a vision of heaven. And in that vision of heaven, God and his people are finally together. This is what we've seen. And there's where the recapitulation comes in. We see that cyclical pattern over and over again, the same thing happening, just with ever-increasing intensity as we go along. And that's where the progressive part comes in. As each new vision unfolds, what we saw took take place in uh, a partial scale, like the trumpets that affected a third of the earth, now the bowls affect all of the earth. And our understanding of what is to come, it grows. And there's the progressive part. So it's not an easy question to answer, when will these things take place? These things are taking place in part, and they will take place in full. Are y'all familiar with the phrase already and not yet? The way we use that terminology to describe the kingdom of God? We describe the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ as the already and not yet kingdom. It's already been inaugurated. The kingdom is alive in us, in the church, in the earth today, and yet the kingdom of God has not fully been consummated. That day is still to come. And you could think about these judgments in the same way. The judgments of God have been revealed, although not in full. They are already taking place, and yet there is coming a greater day of judgment when they will be fully revealed. And I believe that that's what these bowls are all about. But what about the pattern of the Exodus? What about this pattern that we're seeing that... that John is applying to what we see in the Revelation. Now, you might remember that the Exodus, 
Well, you need to understand this. The Exodus was, in fact, a real event. The greatest redemptive event in Israel's history and in the New Testament, the echo of the Exodus helps us to make sense of our relationship to God. See if you can compare these two. Here's some of the thematic elements in the Exodus that we see also in the New Testament church. Our God is moved with compassion to pour out his love and forgiveness upon his covenant people. He hears and answers the cries of his people for justice and for help, and he displays his power to punish those who persecute his adopted sons and daughters. And in the end, he promises to rescue us from our enemies and bring us into the land of promise alongside of him. Now that general explanation can be applied both to the Exodus and to us as Christians. And this framework serves as the foundation for much of what we're reading in the Revelation. Let me give you some of the the symbolism here. In the place of Egypt... In the place of Egypt, that wicked city, uh, John substitutes Babylon. We see that word over and over. We see Babylon, and we're going to see more about it as these series of bowls unfold. But John substitutes Babylon in the place of Egypt. He allows it to serve as the symbolic wicked city that is the capital of our earthly bondage. In the place of Pharaoh, John presents the dragon along with the beast and the false prophet, and they complete the unholy trinity, hurling persecution at the people of God. In the place of the plagues, we have these bowls of wrath that God is using to pour out his punishment upon the world who has set their sights on Christ and his church. And in the place of Canaan, in the place of the promised land, John points our hearts to the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where God and man will dwell together once more. So John is taking that thematic framework from the Exodus and he's bringing it forward and it helps us to make sense of the pictures that we see when we study the Revelation. The Revelation portrays a new Exodus. And at this point in the story, Babylon, the city of Babylon, is under siege from God's judgment. So let's look at these bowls now and let's see the scope of what God is going to do in pouring out his judgment upon the earth. Verse two, the first bowl. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. And we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm gonna go into a little more detail today, but it's it's clear to see that these angels are doing the bidding of God. This is God actively, purposefully, intentionally pouring out his judgment upon this sinful and unbelieving world. It's God who commands him to pour this out, and it's his wrath-filled bowl that they are actually pouring. But there's something interesting about the, the way that this progresses. The language helps us to understand that this particular bowl is poured out onto the earth. Actually, the the original language is he poured out this bowl into the earth. The result will be that those who bear the mark of the beast, and that's that's a reference to those who are rejecting Christ and rejecting the gospel, and they have they've subjected themselves to the God of this world. That's what that language means. And they, have, they worship him, and it is they who will be afflicted. So what, what John is telling us is that this judgment is directed at the unbelieving world, unbelievers who are alive when the day this begins to occur. 
But why is the judgment of God directed into the earth? What's the point there? Now, I'm not going to go back and rehash everything we talked about with the trumpets, but there's, there's a symbolic representation here. God is judging the earth itself, and the earth, which sustains the life of humanity, is no longer going to sustain the life of humanity. The earth supplies the food that is necessary to sustain human life, and God is going to cut that off. That's why the language of him pouring his judgment into the earth, it it gives this picture of the judgment coming into the earth, and then what comes out of the earth brings forth sickness and sores. This is a complete judgment. The earth that's made up of soil and land and trees and grasses and all of those things, the, the the, the substance wherein our food supplies come from, God is cutting them off. And it symbolizes that God is using famine as a tool in his arsenal of punishment. He's going to punish sinful humanity through these means. And if we were c- going to try to make sense out of that, we might make sense out of it in this way. Unbelievers put their trust in worldly security and God will cut that off. The unbelieving world assumes that it can depend on its own strength and its own resources. But God commands one angel to pour out one bowl and those resources can be completely taken away. This is a punishment that actually matches the crime. Look at the language. He says, those who bear the mark of the beast in their flesh, right? There's the symbol. They will suffer and feel the wrath of God in their flesh. The earth which once sustained life is cursed to bring about sickness and torment. So in his judgment, God is going to turn the earth against its inhabitants. That's the picture here. And that's not all. Look at the second bowl in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So the focus has shifted from the earth, the land, to the, the, the sea, the salt water. This is the entire globe is experiencing this particular judgment from God. And you can see the, the juxtaposition, right? When, when the, the second trumpet was blown, a third of the sea creatures were killed. But when this bowl is poured out, everything dies. And once again, the impact of this judgment will be felt in the means of food production, those things necessary to sustain human life. Maritime economy, fishing industries, shipping industries, all of that is going to grind to a halt, is the picture we might have in our minds when God pours out his judgment upon humanity in this way. God is turning the created world against the wicked because rather than seeing the God of creation as the source of all life and health and security, unbelieving humanity has put their hope and trust in the world itself. And God will cut it off. But what about for us? What about for believers? As believers in Christ, our hope has never been in this world, has it? Our ultimate hope is not in this world. Our ultimate hope is not what this world can provide. Our ultimate hope is in Christ and what he will provide and what he has promised. Our ultimate security is not tied to the things of this world, but to the one who made this world. We set our hope on him and upon his promises. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Our hope is in the Lord. It's in his power to save. And when we close our eyes in this world for the last time, we have hope and confidence that we will open our eyes in the world that he has made for us. That's where our confidence and security lies. 
And yet we need to be reminded of that, don't we? One of the themes that I haven't brought up too much, I'll bring it up later. One of the themes that you see in this revelation is that God is giving this picture to the church. And that does a couple of things. It informs the church, but it also, it also serves as a gentle rebuke to the church who might learn to put our hope and trust a little bit in this world and then a little bit in God. I mean, Jesus told his own disciples that, that they're not to put their hope and trust in this world. What, what does it profit you to gain the whole world if you for, forfeit your soul? That temptation for us to put our hope in our bank account? <laughs> that temptation for us to put our hope in the, the machinations of what's happening in the world around us? And feeling the anxiety that comes when things aren't going our way? We can be tempted to compromise our faith by loving the world in a way that Christ has called us not to love the world. And so as believers, we need to be reminded, this world is not our home. This is not where our hope lies. Our security is not in the land we've purchased. Our hope and our security and our confidence is in Christ, in his promises to save us and to secure our place with him no matter what happens here. And oh, by the way, this was a common theme throughout the Old Testament. I mean, think about this particular psalm, which we know pretty well. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in days of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth falls apart, though the earth gives way, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, our hope is secure because our hope is in him, not this world. So we need to be reminded of that. The unbelieving world has put their hope in this. We put our hope in the Lord. Should we care about the land that God has given to us? Should we care about the sea that God has given to us? Absolutely we should. God has given us dominion over this earth, and we should care for it as he has directed us. But our ultimate hope is not in the land nor the sea. Our ultimate hope is in Christ alone. What about the third bowl? Let's look at verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So God's judgment has been poured out into the earth, into the sea, and now into the fresh waters. Even the fresh waters come under God's judgment. And if you're, you're keeping score at this point, God has removed the earth that provides grain. He has removed the oceans that provide fish, and now he's cut off the water supplies that, that sustain life. And God did not, in this judgment, cause the waters to dry up. He turned them into blood. There's a picture. There's a symbolic picture here. The symbolism is actually explained in the words of the angel. The angel, in verse 5, he, he praises God for his justice, and then he tells us that the punishment has fit the crime. Look at verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, the unbelieving world, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and now you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? Where, where's that picture coming from? Well, let's think back. Remember, the Exodus account is the thematic framework for our understanding of this, and you might remember when the plague of the waters being turned to blood happened, 
the people began to cry out. They began to cry out not only because their, their food supply was gone, the fish were dying, but also because the water was tainted. Do you remember that back in the Exodus? They had to dig at the side of the Nile to get fresh water. And so the Egyptians were tired of drinking bloody death water. And John is bringing that picture full circle. He's saying this, the wicked world has shed the blood of God's people. You might say they were bloodthirsty. And in response, God gave them what they were seeking. He gave them blood to drink. It's a symbolic picture of the the weight and the horrendous nature of this particular judgment. To this point, the earth, the sea, and the fresh water have been affected. The things that our world depends on every day have been taken away by the hand of God. And for those who put their hope and security in this life, for those whose motto is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, tomorrow has come and it is brutal. But there's more. That's only the third bowl. Look at the fourth bowl in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent. They did not give him glory. Now, this plague is, is actually new. It's entirely new. There's not anything that necessarily corresponds to it in the Exodus, and there's not anything that corresponds to it in the trumpets. The only real similarity is the fact that this plague affects the same heavenly bodies that are affected by the trumpets, right? When the fourth trumpet was blown, one-third of the sun, moon, and stars were darkened, and that was symbolizing the, the darkness that God poured out upon Egypt. It was an unnatural, supernatural darkness that was so thick that it caused the Egyptians to fear for their lives. They were terrified by it. You can read about it in Exodus 10. But in this particular case, God doesn't turn the lights off. He turns the lights up. The sun is now an instrument of judgment in God's hands. The bowls result in the sun growing more intense, not less. Now, okay, before this becomes a passionate discussion on global warming, let me remind you that these visions are a symbolic picture of God's judgment, not the long-term effects of something man-made. This is God's doing. The warm sunlight that once marked the beginning of a new day of undeserved kindness is giving way to the blistering rays of deserved judgment. God is the author of this. And once again, he is turning the normal function of creation against the unbelieving inhabitants of the world. Those inhabitants know, in this particular case, they know that it's God pouring out that judgment and they still shake their fists at him. No repentance on their part. All right, let's look at the fifth bowl. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. We see something shift here. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. So we've seen God turn the natural world into a tool of divine justice. And here we see he turns his attention to the supernatural world. That's the picture. That's the symbolism here. This judgment doesn't fall on humanity directly, it falls on the throne of the beast, which is a reference to Satan. 
This is a, this is a reference to the, the satanic influence in the world coming under the judgment of God. And his entire kingdom, here's the indirect effect that it has upon unbelieving humanity, his entire kingdom is now thrown into darkness. Now what about the language of his throne? The, the throne of Satan or the throne of the beast, that, that's the focal point here. And you might understand that as the throne is the focal point of his power. His, his kingdom implies a people and a place and a king, right? So he's the king and there's a people and the place is Babylon or the unbelieving world. And when his throne is attacked, his people feel the effects of that and his kingdom is plunged into darkness. Every aspect of Satan's influence in the world is now being affected by God's command to pour out a bowl. Do not get in your mind this idea that Satan is God's you know, arch enemy. He doesn't stand a chance against the creator. And that's sewn up over and over and over again. Now, you also may remember this. Um, back in Revelation 2, Jesus used the language of the throne of Satan when he addressed the church in Pergamum. Does anybody remember that? Probably not. It might have a footnote in your Bible or something. So when Jesus wrote his letter to the church at Pergamum, he warned them in this way. He says this, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. And yet, in the midst of that, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant or my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he's, he's, he's writing this letter to the church. He says, look, I know where you are. You're right there where, the, where Satan himself dwells. And, and the days of persecution came and they were hard and you saw it and you were in the midst of it and yet you did not abandon the gospel. You didn't compromise. That's a good word for us. But here's the point, I think. Here's the symbolic point of Jesus calling this the throne of Satan or the throne of the beast is that these individuals live in a place that's spiritually dangerous for Christians to live. Friends, let's just be honest with each other. Is it a spiritually dangerous place for us to live in this country right now? Are there ideas and ideologies and voices that would try to take your heart and your hope away from our hope in Christ? Absolutely. And the temptation to shut those things off and the temptation to focus on the truth of Scripture, the temptation to, to, to leave the God we love. I mean, that's something we face every day. And there, there is coming a day, and Jesus tells us here in this book, there is coming a day when that temptation will be completely cut off. By the decree of God, Satan's power will be completely stripped from him. His wicked kingdom will be plunged into terrifying darkness. His inhabitants will suffer pain and anguish that's symbolized by the gnawing of their own tongues. This plague affects unbelievers because they have put their hope in a kingdom that cannot stand. And even then, according to this text, even then they will not repent. So this is a, this is a, a horrible picture to see just to imagine in our minds what this judgment will be like. But it's intended to teach us. It's intended to prepare us. We've seen it and heard it over and over again, so let's make sure that we learn and apply the lessons that we can. 
And I know we, get, we, we talked about that a little bit last week, but let's talk about it more specifically. And I want to offer four different truths that we should take away from this text. Number one, worldly security will one day come to an end. Worldly security will one day come to an end. So many of the people around us, and we are tempted to think this way as well, so many people believe that the world will simply go on spinning as it always has. And nothing's going to change. Just a new political cycle, right? We can just kind of rest in this notion that everything is just going to continue on as it always has. And in that mode, people will put their hope in the things around them. They'll put their hope in this world and not in the Lord. They'll put their hope in the government to solve their problems. Or they'll put their hope in you know, some new ideology that says we need to get passionate about this thing now. And we can put our hope in the, the idea that, well, we'll always have food to eat. Grocery stores will always have the things we want. Eggs will always be cheap. Their ultimate hope is in this world rather than the God who made this world. And let me just remind you, this is just something we've already amened this morning. As Christians, we know that this world is not our home, nor should it be our hope. Worldly security will come to an end. The natural world belongs to God. Put your trust in Him and not in it. Jesus told His disciples, and by extension, He told us, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Nothing can take them away from you. That, that kingdom is absolutely secure. That's where our hope lies. Worldly security will come to an end. The kingdom of God will not. That's the first lesson we can learn from this. The second, the deeds of man will be judged. It is appointed for man to die, and after that comes judgment. We know this. But we can live as though we will not answer for the sins of our mouths and our lives and our hearts and our minds. The deeds of man will be judged. The judgment of God is coming and it will impact the world's economy, the world's ecology, the world's industry, and every single human life. And the fact that God has revealed these things to us before they come to pass should serve as a warning to us to wake up, to repent of our sins, to be faithful in the days that we've been given, to make disciples with the time that we've been allowed to live here. The call of God is for us as Christians to turn from our sins and to walk this world out with faithfulness to Christ, to be salt and light where he's, where he's placed us. But the calling is also for those who are here who are not believers today to understand that your deeds will come under his just judgment. And you have but two chances, or, or, or at least two outcomes. You can either face the judgment of God on your own, or you can put your hope and trust in Christ and understand that he has taken the wrath of God that you deserve. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. When Jesus died on the cross, he was receiving in his flesh the due penalty for the sins of all those who believe. So that by trusting in him, which is a work of God in us, we can have confidence that our sins have been paid for, that our punishment has been poured out. It's been poured out on him who lovingly sacrificed his life for us. And if you can look at that and not want to honor the one who gave his life for you, then I don't think you quite grasp the grace of God. 
The judgment of God will be poured out upon the deeds of men one way or the other. Either we will endure that ourselves or Christ endured it on our behalf. But I will say this, as far as the scripture tells us, when this final day of judgment unfolds, there doesn't seem to be any chance of repentance. Which means that today is the day of salvation. Number three, the church must guard against compromising with the world. The church must guard against compromising with the world. Don't forget that this book was written to the church It was given to our earliest brothers and sisters who were tempted to engage in all kinds of compromising sins. And we read about that and we studied that back when we studied the the letters of, of Jesus to the churches. But they were being tempted to compromise their faith in all kinds of different ways. And this revelation encouraged them to stay faithful to Christ rather than giving their love back to the world. And we can, we can identify with this. Opportunities to compromise were present in their day and opportunities to compromise are present in our day. And Christ calls us to stay faithful to him until the end. He commands us not to love the world because what good is it to gain the world and forfeit your soul? He commands us to stay true to him. So do that. Stay true to Christ. Stay true to his word. Stay true to this fellowship of believers. Stay true to the church. Don't give your love to the world or the things in the world. The church must guard itself against compromising with the world. And then finally, we should marvel at the grace of God. Number one, worldly security will come to an end. Number two, the deeds of man will be judged. Number three, the church must guard against compromising with the world. And number four, we, must, we should marvel at the grace of God. The true catalyst that distinguishes the church, believing Christians, from the unbelieving world set to receive this judgment, the true catalyst between those two things is not our goodness, it's God's grace undeserved favor from God. We're all sinners. We all share in the depravity of mankind and our sin deserves the justice of God the same as theirs. But by God's grace, our eyes were opened. By God's grace, our hearts were opened. By faith in him, we, we, we have our sin forgiven and we know that our punishment has already been poured out. The only thing separating us from the unbelieving world is the grace of God through Christ. And as we study this, Maybe we could think and be motivated with compassion for our lost friends and and neighbors and family members. But we should also just simply marvel at this. This grace should humble our hearts, it should motivate our faithfulness, and it should fuel our worship. Because we see a picture of our gracious God. So, there's so much more we can study in this. We're going to move on from these first five bowls next week. I promise you that, Lord willing. But let's not miss out on an opportunity to learn these lessons and seek to apply them in our lives. Would you pray with me as we do that? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises contained therein. Thank you for the the pictures that you show us and the revelation that you give us. You, You show us things that are yet to be because you want us to know them and you want us to ponder them and you want us to to think on them and you want us to be motivated by them. And we don't want to be those who are just puffed up with knowledge. We want to be those who are humbled by that truth and motivated to love you and to love one another well. And so, Father, would you help us to apply the lessons of this book and would you accomplish your purpose in us and through us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.